Al Jazeera podcast. To keep up with the latest from Gaza, make sure to subscribe to The Take. It helps more listeners find out about the show. Hit follow wherever you're listening to this episode. For many Palestinians, social media may be one of the very few venues to tell their stories firsthand. But even there, they say, they can be subject to censorship. I just went on TikTok and said, this is my new account. Boom, three seconds. That's all, all the time that it took, three seconds only. To shut you down. To shut me down. Journalist Fatin Elwan is one of many Palestinians who's complained of being banned. And as the war on Gaza escalates, social media companies have come under pressure to tighten their grip on content even more. The European Union wrote to both X and Meta, which owns Facebook, urging the companies to take down misleading posts and videos and comply with European law. But weeding out misinformation can be tricky, with several official narratives for the same story. One example is the Al-Ahli hospital blast in Gaza last Tuesday. Here's Riyad Mansour, Palestine's UN ambassador, responding to a journalist during a press conference on it. The Israeli prime minister said, and I quote, the intelligence from multiple sources said it's the Islamic Jihad is responsible for the failed rocket launch. Your your response? He is a liar. His uh, spokesperson and digital spokesperson tweeted that Israel did the hit. So to what extent is disinformation and censorship on the internet steering the conflict? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. It is a horrific night in Gaza, where an airstrike hit a hospital, killing hundreds. Who hit the hospital is in dispute. The exchange of blame between Palestinian and Israeli officials over who's behind the strike on Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza quickly turned into a battleground of narratives and counter-narratives on social media. Our fact-checking agency at Al Jazeera, Sanad, investigated the blast. So uh, what we know so far with clear evidence is that whatever the Israelis claimed in a press conference and in their statements just after the incident is absolutely false. The projectile that hit the hospital was not misfired by any Palestinian armed groups. Al Jazeera senior investigator Abdullah Ahmed and his team analyzed hours of videos and photos while taking a deep look at the timeline. We have two clear visuals, live streams of the incident. One of them is actually from Al Jazeera live stream, and the other one is from a live stream from Tel Aviv, where it's a live stream of Gaza. And it's synced with the live stream on Al Jazeera. So the fact that both live streams are synced helped us paint a full picture of what happened uh, at 6.59 Gaza time uh, and what happened with the incident, where basically there were projectiles fired from the Palestinian armed groups toward Israel, and there were interceptions to these projectiles. However, after they were intercepted, the hospital was hit from outside Gaza. Abdullah says his team collected photographic and video evidence of the moment of impact that was posted online in places like Telegram. The way we verified these live streams and the way we verified the other visuals as well is directly through geolocation. 
and through making sure that we managed to find the original source of it. So by doing this verification and by establishing this timeline, we're able to verify it, we're able to paint the picture and we're able to understand what happened, which is basically refuting whatever the Israelis claimed. Here's part of Al Jazeera's investigative report. Going back to the Al Jazeera live feed at 1859.35, we can see a single rocket launched from Gaza. This is the rocket in question. This rocket can also be seen on the Israeli CCTV video. 15 seconds later, Al Jazeera's live feed shows that the same rocket was intercepted at exactly 1859.50. This interception has the same afterglow seen in previous interceptions. A closer look at the video captured by the Al Jazeera live feed shows the rocket being completely destroyed and broken apart in the sky. According to all feeds and videos analyzed, this rocket was intercepted and was the last one launched from Gaza before the bombing of the hospital. Verifying information on social media is not an easy job. Creators behind false content may sometimes be deliberately spreading propaganda. Mark Owen Jones, Associate Professor of Middle East Studies at Hamid bin Khalifa University in Doha, told us how misinformation can be weaponized to steer public opinion and justify certain actions. Atrocity propaganda is really using the most egregious, violent and brutal forms of conflict for purposes of propaganda, whether you're inventing them or, or they're real and exploiting them. And in order to capture attention, then, when you've already got this threshold of horrendous activity, it means having to go to even the most egregious, most violent, most awful acts imaginable in order to capture the attention of potential viewers in order to evoke their sympathy and win them over to your side. And I think the the narratives we heard about babies in particular and children, you know, the, the false narrative about 40 beheaded babies that has become famous, uh, that was spread initially by Israeli accounts. The shocking sight of babies and young children with their heads cut off meant that the soldiers who found them and recovered their bodies were seen crying and comforting each other. This narrative is one example. The narrative that Hamas faked uh, the death of a, a young girl and used the doll wrapped up in a shroud to generate international sympathy. You know, there's one narrative that was not verified, again from an Israeli source that highlighted, or mentioned rather, how Hamas had ripped a, a baby from a pregnant woman's womb. Now, why have this? Obviously, they're, they're designed to make Palestinians look brutal and violent. It's this kind of propaganda that one Palestinian digital rights advocate we spoke to is trying to challenge. My name is Marwa Fatafta, and I work at a global organization called Access Now, and I lead their work in the Middle East and North Africa region. So I imagine with a job like that, you have been very busy over these past couple of weeks. What has life been like for you? Um, it's... Extremely so. Um, on a personal level, of course, it's been very, very difficult and traumatizing um, watching everything happening back home. Marwa grew up in the West Bank city of Hebron. Now she works in Hamburg, Germany. I asked her about last week's strike on the hospital in Gaza. What did you make of what you saw online 
when it came to what happened at this hospital? It's been quite fascinating and not in a good way to see how overpowering disinformation can be. We're used to Israeli authorities playing according to a very specific playbook when it comes to how they cover up their crimes. The first thing is to mislead the public with sort of disinformation. When the Palestinian-American Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akhle was killed, the first thing that the Israeli authority did was to tweet a piece of disinformation suggesting or saying that um, Shirin was actually shot by Palestinian gunmen. And I remember at the time, I think they even posted some footage to show where the location of the gunmen. And then thanks to journalists and also human rights organizations who've conducted an investigation into those allegations and found that actually the location of the footage that the Israelis provided was distant from uh, where Shirin was shot and killed. And then later on, they resorted to another narrative, and that is, well, she was probably caught in a crossfire. And later on, they said, well, maybe it could be an Israeli um, soldier that killed Shirin, but we're going to investigate. And of course, if the Israelis investigate themselves, they will never, ever admit to, to committing crimes. But the process is very clear. Like the first thing is you throw a piece of disinformation, so everyone then becomes busy with, does this really happen? Or who is responsible for it? Is it Israel that bombed the hospital? Or is it Islamic Jihad? And there are blurry lines between whose accounts you can trust online and whose you can't. I have seen accounts on X or Twitter that have been sharing also disinformation based on ideological lines. They do investigations, they can rebuke or confirm whether a piece of information is right or wrong. But these accounts themselves have also been spreading disinformation, which makes it difficult for ordinary people to know what is right, what is wrong, what is actually true and false here. I wonder if part of that has to do with AI, because artificial intelligence has played a big role in some of the misinformation that people are citing online. You can easily generate pictures and videos using AI tools these days, which means you can also generate and spread articles and posts online with those images and pictures backing them up. And something that comes to mind is something that I've seen circulating, videos of airstrikes and rockets launching in Gaza that then turned out not to be real. They were scenes from video games. What's your advice for people to draw a line between reality and fiction? Um, That's a very difficult question. I think a question (laughs) everything you see, because unfortunately, as you said, generative AI has produced like a new level of threat to, to, to the issue of disinformation. There are, of course, tools out there that could help people to uh, see if the certain images uh, actually has been doctored and whether it's synthetic media or real. But we need to build that literacy. Disinformation isn't the only obstacle Palestinians and others face online. Censorship is another battle some are fighting in the cyber world. More on that after the break. 
The Inside Story podcast dissects, analyzes, and helps define major global stories. We get into the details with experts who explain how policies affect people. The Inside Story podcast by Al Jazeera. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So Marwa, your job is to keep an eye on digital rights in the Middle East and North Africa, and that of course includes Palestine. So shortly after Hamas launched its attacks on Israel, followed by the ongoing Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, social media companies like Meta, X, formerly known as Twitter, and TikTok announced that they were suspending accounts for people who had violated their content policies. Amidst the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, X, formerly known as Twitter, has removed hundreds of Hamas-affiliated accounts from the platform. The move came in response to European Union industry chief Thierry Breton's 24-hour ultimatum to Elon Musk to tackle the spread of disinformation on X. Now, several users announced that they had been impacted by these bans and they complained of anti-Palestinian censorship. Mm -hmm. And then you had news organizations as well. Quds News Network, one of Gaza's independent news outlets, announcing that they had recently been banned on Facebook. What do you make of these bans and, and what people are saying is happening to them? First of all, these bans um, are real. And unfortunately, we have been grappling with um, this online censorship of Palestinian, pro-Palestinian voices for years. 2021, when Sheikh Jarrah protests and campaigning online had erupted, you know, we saw back then how prevalent and egregious censorship was and how social media companies were quick to clamp down on Palestinian voices. The excuse has always been, you know, oops, it was a, a technical glitch. We as, as a human rights organization or a digital rights organization working with many others have been campaigning loud and clear that this systematic censorship needs to, to, to stop. And, you know, at that point, we had insisted that there should be like a post-mortem third-party independent investigation into uh, Meta's actions. There was an investigation and the results were clear that, first of all, the Palestinian content is being over-moderated and censored. The culprit behind the censorship is anti-terrorist policies by which many Palestinians are not able to express themselves or to refer or use certain words such as the word Shahid, which means a martyr in English and that's how Palestinians refer to their killed. Um, or, for example, the fact that many of um, the designated individuals and groups uh, in Meta's list, some of them, you know, are Palestinian factions. They're a part, you know, whether you agree with them or not, support them or not, they're part of the political fabric. And in the case of Gaza, they're actually the de facto government. So for journalists, for people, it's quite um, commonplace for, uh, for, to refer to these organizations and individuals. So Marwa, social media companies say their policies apply to all users, which includes Israelis. But the Arab Center for Advancement of Social Media, Hamle, said it detected more than 19,000 cases of hate speech and inciting content in the Hebrew language on X since October 7th. 
That was the day that Hamas launched its attacks on Israel. Do you think that these policies apply to all users, or are there double standards? Well, I can tell you something for sure. What companies say and what companies do are two different things. And they, of course, say that their policies and uh, content moderation terms of services apply to all of their users. But that's categorically not true. The resources and the investment and the, whether it be human or algorithms or systems that are invested and, and allocated for um, moderating content in different languages is not the same. And I shared with you the example of you know our campaigning in 2021 and the investigation that was conducted into Meta's actions in, in the context of Israel and Palestine uh, back then. And one of the things that came out indeed that there was bias in the way the company had applied it, its policies, but also that one of the reasons why hate speech was rampant and still rampant in, in Hebrew is because the company did not have Hebrew classifiers. And that is, you know, words or keywords or classifiers that uh, feeds their algorithms to be able to automatically detect and remove hate speech and incitement to violence. There is for Arabic, and it's not actually perfect, because in Arabic there are so many dialects. Then there is, of course, the question of the policies themselves, because at the end of the day, you know, who sets the rules? In the context of Ukraine, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, Meta came out in full support of Ukrainians' right to self-defense and had made exceptions to and carve-outs to existing policies. They even made a carve-out that allows people to call for the death of Putin and Russians. Then they rolled it back after a backlash. None of these, let's say, carve-outs, exceptions, have ever been extended to Palestinians. Finally, Marwa, sometimes it can feel like we're just talking about social media. It doesn't really matter in the context of everything else that's happening. But for many Palestinians, especially, social media can be the only venue that they have to tell their stories, especially when legacy media does not feature their voices and it's not telling those stories. We've been following Gazans online who are tweeting and posting about their daily airstrikes and their struggle to find water and food in the midst of this. Hey guys, so today is the third and worst day of the attacks on Gaza. Israel is currently relentlessly bombing the city center of the Gaza Strip. We don't have any shelters and the situation is so, so bad. My friends are texting me that they really think this time they're going to just die. When you take into account what people are using social media for when it comes to a war like this, how then do they continue to post and share with the world Mm. on these platforms, given all of the obstacles that they also have to face with these platforms? Yeah, it's, it's been difficult. At this point, I don't think legacy media is is open to the idea of giving Palestinians the space to tell their story and the space to uh, share important context to what is happening on the ground. And social media in the past, and even to a certain extent now, had offered that alternative space when legacy media didn't 
I am really concerned because the entire Gaza Strip is in a near complete information blackout. People are not able to have access to reliable internet, which means disinformation will flourish further. There's no one to dispel it or to um, uh, offer an alternative narrative. And the censorship exercised by social media is becoming even more egregious. The Palestinian narrative, whatever is left of it, you know, out there is, is becoming also meddled with uh, or grade or you know, fought with disinformation machinery. Everyone I know, they've been, you know, becoming creative to find ways to overcome that censorship. What else is left free for us to, to fight and resist this violence we see on the ground, aside from our voices and the need to speak up uh, against war crimes, speak up against atrocities, speak up against genocide, speak up against oppression. And despite the censorship, uh, whether it be by legacy media, social media, the government clampdown, that's the only you know space we have and we need to utilize it as much as we can. And that's The Take. To see Al Jazeera's investigative report on the hospital blast in Gaza, head to the show's description. We've placed a link to the full video there. This episode was produced by Siri Al-Khalili with Chloe K. Lee, Zaina Bezer, David Enders, Veronisa Campana, Khaled Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, Amy Walters, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.